Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. So it's no secret that one of the biggest air power events this year is the unveiling of America's new bomber, the B-21, which is set to happen next week at the plant where it's being built in Palmdale, California. Now, this is an incredible accomplishment and the time when large number of these bombers populate active flight lines can't come soon enough. As we often highlight here on the podcast, America currently fields the smallest, oldest inventory of bombers it's ever had, going all the way back to the founding of the United States Air Force. And given what we're seeing combatant commands request every day, we simply need a lot more modern bombers than we now have on the ramp. And if we ever do go to war, demand for them will obviously spike even higher. So while everyone will rightfully be celebrating the rollout of the B-21, it is important to recognize that this aircraft wasn't a foregone conclusion. The Air Force had to fight for it. The decision to launch the program came after Secretary of Defense Bob Gates canceled a previous effort called the Next Generation Bomber, and he was on the offensive against military leaders who were looking past challenges in Iraq and Afghanistan. The DoD might be all about the China threat right now, but it certainly wasn't back then in the late 2000s. The program that ultimately developed into the B-21 was stewarded by a small group of individuals just over a dozen years ago who were convinced the threats of the future would look a lot different than fighting terrorists and that our combatant commanders would increasingly need the capabilities to penetrate enemy airspace and strike targets at range and that America's existing bomber force was simply too old and too small to meet this demand. They executed the analysis, they participated in the hard conversations, and helped make the case for resetting America's bomber force for the future. And that's what we're going to talk about today with a great panel of leaders who are deeply involved in these decisions. General Kevin Chilton was head of STRACOM at the time, the command in charge of America's nuclear arsenal. Major General Charlie Lyon was the Director for Joint Integration at the Directorate of Operational Capability Requirements with the Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations, Plans, and Requirements. Lieutenant General David Deptula was Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance. And Mark Gunzinger, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Forces Transformation and Resources in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and later rejoined the Air Force to help lead the effort to assess the need to develop a new penetrating bomber and other long-range strike capabilities. With that, gentlemen, thank you so much for being here today. General Chilton, welcome to the show. It's like it's great to join you. General Lyon, always great to speak with you, sir. Good morning, Slick. It's just great to be here to be able to take part in this podcast with the Mitchell Institute. General Deptula, thank you for being here. Yeah, good to be on again, Slick. Gonzo, it's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, Slick. Great to be back. All right. Now, to put everybody into the headspace of this era, and to be clear, we're talking about the years between 2008 and 2011. Could one of you paint a picture regarding the tenor of the Pentagon at the time and the leadership priority? General Deptula, let's get started with you. Well, yeah, Slick, that's interesting, and I'll get to that. But let me hit some key background points to set the stage for our audience. And I'm going to go back to the Pentagon's 1990 major aircraft review that occurred after the fall of the Berlin Wall. In that review, reduced the B-2 by from 132 to a 75 aircraft. And then two years later, President George H.W. Bush halted production of the B-2 at 20. And his rationale was the Cold War was over. Now, a couple of years later, 94-95, the Commission on Roles and Missions of the Armed Forces basically started up a future bomber force study that yours truly was in charge of. I actually ran the study on whether that we should terminate bomber production or continue to build the B-2. And I worked very hard to create the logic to reverse President Bush's decision and build 75 B-2s. But the Department of Defense was not interested by that time, and so that quietly uh, went away and was kind of sidelined. In 
1997, there was an independent bomber force review that was chaired by Brent Scrowcroft. And essentially it said that the planned force of 21 B-2s did not satisfy U.S. military requirements. The following year, and I think you can get the, the gist here, is almost every other year there was another panel. There was one in 98 congressionally mandated on long-range air power that was headed by former Chief of Staff General Larry Welch. And he basically said, you shouldn't use any additional B-2 funding that was supposed to go for new equipment to restart low-rate production of additional B-2s. So his panel basically ended any hope of additional B-2 production. The next year, we saw Operation Allied Force unfold where the B-2s really, that was their premier engagement and they damaged a higher percentage of targets than any other aircraft participating. So that vividly demonstrated their value. Then the next year was the second quadrennial defense review. And I was in charge of the Air Force portion of that review and developed a concept known as Global Strike Task Force that pushed for a combination of B-2s and F-22s as a leading edge force for halting adversary incursions. It was adopted by then Air Combat Command Commander John Jumper, but then frankly, it became overcome by events with Operation Enduring Freedom uh, and Operation Iraqi Freedom in the post 9-11 timeframe. But right after 9-11, Pete Aldridge, then the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, he did ask the Air Force to take action to develop a future long-range strike aircraft uh, that could begin a developmental program in the 2012-2015 timeframe. So some people in the Department of Defense were listening. There was another study, actually the defense planning guidance directed a study called the Long Range Global Precision Engagement Study. And now as a two-star, I became involved as the study director. And our findings were that the military didn't have sufficient long range strike precision capacity. So these all kind of set the stage for FY 2005, where the Air Force put in a wedge for development of a next generation bomber in the 2008-2009 timeframe. Now, correspondingly, during that time, Secretary of Defense Gates had become very emotionally focused on Iraq and Afghanistan, and he was actively attacking people who suggested that peer threats could pose a challenge. And ultimately, it's this perspective that resulted in his firing of Chief Mosley and Secretary Wynne. And that kind of sets us up for the time frame that gets us into the actual development or the rise and fall of the next generation bomber and then the follow-on LRSB, which ultimately becomes the B-21. So I'll turn it over to Gonzo. So those are great insights. I'll add that OSD at the time, which is where I was sitting, was divided on the need for so-called high-end capabilities like new stealthy bombers and fighters. One of my responsibilities, and I became DASD in 2007, I was in OSD policy, was to develop the defense planning guidance for the secretary. In fact, the uh, guidance you mentioned, General Deptula, in 2004, I also had a hand in writing. Now, policy strongly supported programs and capabilities to maintain a robust nuclear triad and deter Chinese actions that would destabilize the Western Pacific. And we engaged in countless debates with OSD CAPE, which was then known as PE, on the right mix of low-end capabilities to support coin and counterterrorism operations and high-end capabilities needed to modernize for future threats. You remember, Charlie, it was all about low-end versus high-end exactly. at the time. Now, Secretary Gates' standpoint on this mix uh, <laughs> created a challenging environment for those who clearly saw that the military modernization program that China started after Desert Storm was succeeding and represented a growing threat to our national security interests in the Pacific. 
Well, I really get it. And I appreciate what you both have said. And, you know, it's a lot different than what we're hearing today, which is China, China, China. And and rightfully, you know, we're hearing that from DOD leaders today. And I wasn't anywhere near your levels of seniority. But as a company grade officer at the time, I can remember we were feeling those pressures at our level. But let's dial the clock back even further. So despite things being pretty rough for anyone in defense who wanted to look at the future, the Air Force had succeeded in launching a new program called Next Generation Bomber. So what was that effort and how did it fit into the mix at the time? So Gonzo, let's get started with you. Yeah, General Deptua gave a great overview of events in the 90s and the 2000s. And as he said, the decision to cap the B-2 program at 20 aircraft is made by the Bush 41 administration. Now, there was an effort by the Air Force and some in OSD during the 1997 QDR to push for a larger B-2 buy. I helped lead the Deep Attack Weapons Mix study during that QDR, which assessed the need for more B-2s. And to quote the QDR report itself, DOMS determined, in the majority of the cases examined, the scenarios and so forth, additional B-2s deployed quickly to a conflict could improve our ability to halt an adversary's advance during the opening days of a major theater war. This was especially true in cases where there would be little or no warning of the conflict. Now, I find it ironic that 15 years later, this is exactly what DOD is saying it needs. Survivable, long-range strike forces to rapidly bunt and then halt a Chinese invasion of Taiwan or another act of aggression. So back to uh, 97, the bad news is that Cohen decided against buying more B-2s. But... The good news is the insights from DOMS and other studies were not forgotten by champions of modernizing for high-end warfare. In OSD, policy we made penetrating long-range strike and other missions critical to deterring China a major issue during the 2006 QDR. And OSD policy, and to be fair, other administration strategists believe that China's A280 systems were eroding our military's ability to maintain deterrence, and project power in the Pacific. So, unlike the 97 QDR, the 2006 review directed the Air Force to, quote, develop a new land-based, penetrating, long-range strike capability to be fielded by 2018 while modernizing the current bomber force, end quote. And that means, frankly, the SECDEF signed off on the next-generation bomber. Yeah, Gonzo, always love hearing your perspective. I, I re- really want to get uh, General Chilton and General Lyon in here to hear your thoughts on where Next Generation Bomber was headed from a capability perspective and, you know, your thoughts on what we were trying to acquire. You know, was it just a better B-2? And I, I recognize that we do need to keep this all unclassified. I think the first thing I would say, I entered this discussion in about 2005 timeframe, and I was an Air Force programmer at the time. So I had the opportunity to look at where the where the Air Force were making trades across different capability areas. The fact that it's unclassified, we can't say much. I'd also point out for historical fact, it it was also an unacknowledged program at that point. So it was not publicly debated. Beyond that, it was also not debated very broadly inside the Department of Defense or across the Department of Defense. Just a small handful of people really understood where it was going. From a capabilities perspective, some refer to it as the Battlestar Galactica. It's quite aspirational in terms of fielding capabilities and new technologies at the time. The B-2 gave us the baseline. From that, there was an extrapolation of a next-generation bomber which would provide all these capabilities to penetrate, survive, and bring in all the latest of technologies. Beyond that, we can't really talk much. Well, I maybe had a, a little bit of a contrarian perspective on it. I was familiar with the program because while it was being conceived, I was the Air Force programmer. So, of course, I was going to have to figure out a way to find a a way to get this in the Air Force budget or advocate for more dollars for it. So I would attend those meetings. And then also when I moved on to be the Assistant Vice Chief of Staff, I was included in those discussions as well. Uh, Frankly, I thought um, the next generation bomber suffered from requirements creep early on. And perhaps the biggest one, and you'll hear me sing a different song a little later, but the biggest one was the requirement for it to be able to persist, that means loiter in my view, and that's the way it was discussed as in a high threat environment. And I thought this was gonna be, add a tremendous amount of expense to the program. 
the counter to that in my mind was we had shown that with our other stealth aircraft capability, we had the ability to neutralize enemy air defenses in such a fashion that what we really needed was just something that could penetrate and deliver its weapons. But the notion that it would have to loiter over a high threat environment, I thought was a bridge too far. There were other things that were added onto that bomber that I also, which we can't discuss at this point, which I also thought was a little bit of gold plating, but oftentimes it was all linked to that fundamental requirement to persist in a high threat environment. And, and so I frankly wasn't surprised when that particular design lost favor. And on the other hand, I was disappointed that the bomber was canceled because like our other guests, I'm sure strongly feel we needed it. It was fundamental to our national security to continue to have a long range strike capability that could penetrate modern day and future anticipated threats to accomplish the mission assigned. Of course, to close the loop on this assumption that the bomber didn't need to persist in a high threat environment was an assumption that we would feel an adequate force of F-22s and F-35s to be able to do the mission of suppressing enemy air defenses so that the bomber would, although it would have to survive when it penetrated, it did not have to persist over the target area. And of course, that changed when we lost the quantity of buy of F-22s that were necessary to enable a joint strike package to go in to do what I just described. Got it, sir. Do appreciate your thoughts there. And I want to also ask, if you can, what were the culminating drivers that saw the next generation bomber canceled? Really love to get your insight there. Well, from where I sat inside the United States Air Force, and I have to say at this time, I had departed the Pentagon for a year, gone to the area of responsibility in CENTCOM, where I flew the B-1 for a year and got firsthand experience about what a long range and payload can do for combatant commanders when employing air power correctly. And now is back as a capabilities and requirements officer in the Pentagon. To me, quite simply, this was a judgment between today's fight, the 2008 fight, and the future challenge. It came down to that and the discussions about where the department was going to put its resources. And from my perch, it appeared that this was all about that age-old debate about accepting long-term risk for future force structure versus resourcing the ongoing global war on terror. Yes, sir. Thank you for that. And uh, Gonzo, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I was GASD and OSD, as I said, and my boss, Mike Vickers, who's my assistant secretary, I'll remember in my intro briefing, he said, your report card is going to be based on the outcome of the fight for the bar. I loved it. And so the effort to save the next-gen bomber began well before Gates made the decision to cancel it after President Obama's first inauguration. Now, there are a number of analysts in OSD Cape that never bought into the need for the NGB. And they were supported by skeptics in OSD ATNL. And I spent many hours explaining the need for a penetrating bomber to both and why a more robust bomber force was needed to, quote, shape the choices of countries at strategic crossroads, unquote, which was one of DOD's four top priorities coming out of the 2006 QDR. And of course, that term was code speak for shaping the rise of China at the time and curbing China's increasingly aggressive actions in the Western Pacific was a priority of the department, even though it was difficult to say the word China out loud in public. Now, the Air Force and the Joint Staff joined OSD policy in supporting the NGB program, and frankly, our combined efforts succeeded until the change of the Bush 43 administration. After Obama's inauguration, all but one of the senior politicos in OSD who supported the NGB were out of the department. And that created an opportunity for careerists in Cape to go directly to Secretary Gates and argue the NGB was going to cost too much and some of its requirements were still ill-defined and uncertain. That caused Gates to pull the plug on the program and direct a comprehensive review of the need for a new bomber and what its requirements might look like. 
Yeah, Gonzo, I appreciate that perspective there. And General Deptula, I've got to ask, you know, where did this leave the Air Force at this point in time? I mean, people had to be really concerned inside the building. And just to remind folks that now we're flying B-1s and other bombers in support of Iraq and Afghanistan. So now the bomber force is stressed in a role that it never was planned for. And the bomber force is getting older, smaller, and just being flown hard as this whole thing played out. First, uh, both Charlie and uh, Gonzo are spot on in their summaries there. I, I think Charlie put it really nicely in terms of a choice of, you know, investing in the present to the exclusion of the future and accepting the risk. I mean, it was very evident that as threats were increasing in both capability and capacity, and this is China in particular, and our Air Force was becoming older and smaller, it was obvious to most in the Air Force that it was absolutely critical that we build a new stealthy bomber. Uh, but when Chief Mosley and Secretary Wynn raised these issues on Capitol Hill and elsewhere, they were dismissed by the Secretary of Defense at the time, Bob Gates, as too concerned and suffering with, quote, next war-itis, unquote. Secretary Gates simply did not conceive of China as much of a military threat at the time. As Gonzo stated, and most of your audience probably missed it because he said it pretty quick and quietly, you couldn't say the words China and threat in the same sentence because Secretary Gates's perspective was, yeah, you know, they're gonna be a competitor at a strategic level, but you know, we're gonna do this mainly economically. And he simply ignored China as a threat. And as a result, decisions on weapon systems that would be desirable for a Pacific fight were pushed out into the future because Gates was absolutely consumed by Iraq and Afghanistan. And all you have to do is read his book, his first one after he was secretary, and you'll see how invested in the present to the exclusion of the future that he was. So, General Chilton, what was your perspective as the head of STRATCOM? I mean, you had a mission to execute that depended on penetrating bombers carrying nuclear payloads and non-penetrating bombers capable of launching nuclear-capable cruise missiles. And less than two dozen B-2s doesn't go very far given, you know, all of the nuclear and conventional strike requirements. So canceling next-gen bomber absent of a direct replacement had to cause some concern, I think. Well, it absolutely did. And also the aging B-52 force, which was our standoff force, which at some point has to be recapitalized as well. And so these were both heavy on my mind. You know, just a, a quick note on an engagement I had with General Mosley when he was chief and I was the new STRATCOM commander. And where you stand is where you sit, right? And I frankly, I, I supported the development of the NG NGB for all of the conventional missions that are well discussed in the podcast here, but now I'm I'm focused not just on that, which by the way, I believe that is a deterrent part of our deterrent force as well. But the nuclear deterrent force requirements now are something I'm paying close attention to. And it's shortly after I become the STRATCOM commander that my uh, director of requirements comes to me and says, oh, by the way, boss, did you know that the NGB is not, there's no requirement for it to be nuclear capable. And even though I'd been familiar with the program, that had not caught my attention. But you can imagine now it did. So I um, I went to visit Chief Mosley, and in a private conversation, I mentioned to him that you know at some point I'm going to be asked whether or not I support this program in front of Congress. And frankly, I'm going to have to testify I have no need for that bomber for the Stratcom mission unless it's nuclear capable. And he looked at me and he says. What do you mean? I said, Air Force requirements do not require this bomber to be nuclear capable at this time. And he looked at me for a moment. He walked over to his phone, dialed the chief of requirements on his staff and said, make that next generation bomber nuclear capable. Add that to the requirements list. And I looked at him and said, thanks. I'm not sure how that slid through the cracks, but at the time, nobody was thinking about nuclear deterrence, including a large portion of the air staff let alone the rest of the department. And I, th I think that was, it was an unintentional thing from Chief Mosley's perspective, but it was a fact. So 
I was full square, four square behind recapitalization of the bomber force, both for the conventional mission and the numbers required to support the conventional mission, but also with the capabilities needed for the nuclear mission. They included, in my mind, both the ability to penetrate at range with a sufficient payload and also to maintain the capability, since I envisioned the B-52 to one day go away, to do the mission from a standoff perspective. And why did I feel that way? I think the B-52 is, whether it was intentional, I suspect not accidentally, turned out to be one of the most flexible aircraft we ever built. Designed and built as a high altitude penetrating bomber. It had to transition to a low level penetrating bomber and then eventually to a standoff bomber. And without major modification was able to do all three of those things. And so I was very interested in the B-21, which I anticipated would be around for a long time. And that could one day be threatened in a similar fashion, the B-52 became threatened. It would need to have a standoff capability as well as a penetrating capability. My number one requirements though, were range and payload. That's what bombers do. And the way I put it, I need a B-29, not a B-25. Unfortunately, in my view, by putting a cost cap of 550 million per copy on the bomber, although it enabled the Air Force to move forward when they agreed to that, it immediately drove, I think, some artificial trade space in there. Buying them at numbers, of course, is gonna be affected by how much you have to pay for them. But if you don't have adequate range to deliver a gravity weapon over any place on the earth, well, then you're gonna have to have standoff capability. And that standoff capability is gonna be needed on day one, not 30 years later or 20 years later when the threat denies penetration. It's gonna have to have, if it doesn't have range, it's gonna need more tankers to get to target. And that's a cost that oftentimes is put in the models, I'm sure was, but is oftentimes forgot by others. And the more tankers you have to have, the more tankers you have to have on alert when you put these aircraft on alert in heightened tensions means you detract from other missions around the world. It gets very costly very quickly or else you're just flat not able to do the job. I also wanted it to be manned. There was a lot of talk about an unmanned variant. I just could not see putting nuclear weapons on an unmanned platform. Then there was discussions about it being optionally manned. And again, if, if you're worried about cost, what's the purpose of it being optionally manned and why add that additional cost into the program? I'd rather have more range and more payload than an optionally manned aircraft. So, so those were the big things going through my mind. Uh, the Air Force continued to be a bit of a problem from the nuclear perspective. In my view, when later, as after the what is now called the B-21 program started, I've already mentioned the discussions on optionally manned, the discussion was that the first 15 airplane would not be wired for or capable of delivering nuclear weapons, which made no sense to me at all, since I think that is the number one fundamental reason of the bomber. Not the only mission, but the number one from a deterrence perspective. And it took a lot of arguing and discussions with the air staff to get that requirement removed. The compromise position was they would be wired, but they would not be certified for nuclear capability as a first principle. And I decided to not press on that because in my view, that's a Sea Eagle question. What bombs and systems are you gonna certify on the airplane when it first comes out? and nobody knew what the world situation was gonna be in 2010. And we are now in a position for the very first one, I hope, to roll out and have the CQL done on the nuclear weapons side of it, should that be the immediate short-term need required. So we have the flexibility now to decide what capabilities we wanna field first and certify as mission ready on the bomber. The other the final concern I had is one that came up when I was retired, and that was the Air Force acquisition model switching to, and it wasn't Air Force, it was actually the Department of Defense's, to LPTA, lowest price technically acceptable, which was an effort 
to control requirements. It also, I think, it affected innovation. You couldn't win a contract by putting any extra capability in there that was the absolute minimum required because to do that would cost a little more. And at the end of the day, it was a price shootout. And so I'm excited about the B21 rollout. I hope it has the range and payload needed. And I hope that it has the ability to do what the B-52 was able to do throughout its career, and that is grow in capability as the threat adjusts. General Lyon, around this time, you helped create a team to assess future options to execute the long-range strike mission. And Gonzo, you rejoined the Air Force after leaving OSD to help lead this analysis as well. So could you both please walk us through your tasking and how the team approached the challenge? You bet. 2008, as I said, I just returned for the war where I'd seen the great benefit of having capability to have long-range persistence and payload, albeit not in a high-threat environment. Back into the Pentagon, as General Deptool alluded to, at this point, both the Secretary of the Air Force and the Chief of Staff of the Air Force had been dismissed, and there were new leaders at the top of the Air Force. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that under those conditions, when Secretary Donnelly and, and General Schwartz took over the leadership role, we went to them and asked for the opportunity to readdress this decision which had been made by OSD around this time frame to cancel the next generation bomber program. And we had some convincing to do. And as we put a team together, it all started with what I learned in fighter weapons school decades before. It starts with what are the effects that we want to achieve in a battle space. And in this case, looking at a rising, rising threats in peer nations, China and others, but focused on China. What are the targets you want to go after? What are the threats that surround it? What are the tools that we have as we look into the future that will allow future secretaries of the defense to give the president options below a nuclear threshold to execute military might? So we sort of posed that question and got that problem set. And we set off with a group of operators and intelligence folks to assess this future capability and this future need that we would have. And I have to thank General Deptula as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance by making all resources within the Air Force's intelligence community and also to the Defense Intelligence Agency by making all their resources available for us to be able to look at the future projections for both targets and threats in countries like China, but specifically China and others. That opened the door for us to be able to assess and show what is the need, and what is the gap? So we put the team together, we set about that, and we asked for the opportunity, the forum to use would be the Quadrennial Defense Review. And with the change in administration, that's where I think Gonzo can talk to it even better than I can, we found the opportunity through the QDR to readdress this whole issue. Yeah, let me uh, say I'm still grateful to the Air Force for bringing me back to the blue to help fight for a new bomber. Charlie, you, you said it well. I'll add that the review is focus on a need for a new bomber. It was not about restarting the NGB program. The NGB was dead, period, dot. Now, over the next couple of years, this joint team uh, looked at the advantages of a manned, unmanned, option-manned bomber, penetrating versus standoff capability, uh, specific capability attributes, uh, the cost and cost-effectiveness of different alternatives, and so on. Now, I must also say that all the many long-range strike analyses that I've been a part of, starting with the 1993 bottom-up review. Man, that dates me. This was the most intensive, comprehensive effort I've experienced. And inside the Air Force, we had an amazing cadre of majors, tenor colonels, and colonels supporting us, and they're the real heroes of this story. And finally, it's important to remember that the B-21's key performance parameters, most of which, of course, appropriately remain classified, are based on actual analyses of the emerging threat environment and the requirement to strike very large target sets are gonna be very different than in past air campaigns. And as a closer here, there was also desire to achieve the most effective solution to meet our growing gap in long range strike capacity, by which I mean war fighting effectiveness and cost effectiveness. Hey, if I may, I'd just like to leverage off that. That's right on. But L-R-P-S-B, the P, persistent, a key word that we use to get into the dialogue, the discussion, and then talk about the need. So the alternatives 
did not have the ability to pers- persist and survive in the enemy's battle space. Bang on. That was a really key aspect. And in Airman's view, and we harken back to John Boyd and the OODA loop, an airman looks at this problem and set and says, this environment in the future is going to be increasingly mobile for targets that are on the surface. That OODA loop has to be as short as possible. You need minimum time from finding and fixing to when you, you engage and then assess your attacks. That's how we really, really leverage that one word, the survivability and the lethality to be persistent in the adversary's battle space. No one else could fill that need. Right. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate that. I just want to ask one other quick question during that time. That This is where the notion of this, quote, family of systems, end quote, kind of began and started to percolate. So what was this all about? Yeah, all credit to the Air Force on this one. The Air Force, not OSD, decided it was important to assess the entire family of systems for long-range strike, which includes a new bomber as well as systems for penetrating ISR, airborne electronic attack, the weapons that can be delivered by bombers and other other capabilities that were needed to close kill chains over long ranges. Now, another way of saying it was the analysis was focused more on identifying key gaps in long range strike and then determine the right solutions for filling them rather than simply arguing for a new bomber. Now, the result, of course, is the LRSB, which is now the B-21, and other investments that are needed to rebuild our Air Force's long-range strike capacity. And the evidence for a new penetrating bomber is convincing then, just as it is now. And I'll, I'll cite something that Secretary Gates actually uh, asked toward the end game of that study, which is, why would anyone want anything but a new penetrating bomber? And that, of course, was based on analysis and based on the fact that a new penetrating bomber was the best solution as part of that family of systems. Again, I'd like to give a shout out to the Air Force Weapons School. This is something that that all our tactical expert captains learn. Family of systems is a nice Pentagon term for what we learned as captains is force packaging. You look at the effects you you want to achieve, you look at the threat environment you're going to go into, and you say, what are the tools I have across the air domain, across the other domains, but we were focusing on air domain at that time. What are the capabilities that will be able to survive and be lethal in that environment? So family systems, 21st century force packaging of of air assets being supported by assets from other domains. Yes, sir. And just a quick pile on to that point, just having returned from Nellis last week, you'd be proud to know that that they're continuing to do that and baking it even more and more into the program. And uh, and they're just executing with with this mindset every day. In general, you know, while the defense is all over joint all domain command and control now, and the notion that advanced sensors, increased processing power and connectivity will up our game, that was a lonely drum to beat a dozen years ago. So obviously it plays a lot into uh, how a future bomber should be designed, built and operated. So what were those conversations like? Well, first, what I'd tell you regarding your comment of it being a lonely drum to beat, I'd say yes and no. At the time, as both Charlie and Gonzo have stated, many folks recognized that the bomber was going to be a part of a system of systems. As Charlie said, it's sort of, you know, ingrained in how we how we fight. But for some, and some who should have known better, it was that, that they, they embraced that for all the wrong reasons. To them, it was a way to keep the unit cost of the bomber as low as possible by offboarding systems and claiming that, well, well I'll get that from somewhere else. Uh, much more so than the realization of building a combat cloud with the degrees of connectivity, sensing, and control that would link sensors to shooters in an optimal fashion. But some of us were trying to plant the seeds that later developed into what we now call joint all-domain command and control. But it was an interesting time period to see the way different people came at this notion of system of systems. So General Chilton, you are watching this play out from a Stratcom headquarters perspective in Omaha, and the team obviously needs to get your buy-in as a major stakeholder in whatever the future bomber would look like. So what did you prioritize and why? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I prioritized range and payload. That's that's what you need from a bomber. And I needed something that could range anywhere on the planet. 
It could come off its last tanker outside the threat ring, penetrate, deliver its gravity weapon. I also wanted it to be able to carry standoff weapons and not knowing what the future would be. I thought whatever the size of the air, air launch cruise missile was, which is what we had at the time for the B-52, I wanted it to be able to carry it internally because I wanted it to be able to maintain its stealth cross-section and deliver that should it be required to penetrate before it launched a standoff, that standoff weapon. And I wanted it to be able to have hard points on the wing so you could load them up in numbers. The B-52 can carry 20 outcomes. And, and that's a powerful force. Now, that wasn't my requirement that the B-21 carry 20 outcomes, but it, my requirement was that it carry more than just an internal load, that it'd be able to have external carriage capability so that we could upload a significant numbers, either it, should the president decide to put them on alert or if we had to put them on alert as a hedge against a technical failure in one of the other three legs of the triad, or in case of a change in the geopolitical situation, which frankly we are seeing right now with China growing a first strike capability. So I'm glad I argued for those requirements. Of course, I left shortly after that. I guess we'll find out shortly whether they they stuck. All right, Gonzo, as I understand it, you had the opportunity to brief General Chilton and others on alternatives for a new bomber. Other issues on the table included its cost, the payload capability and capacity, the size of the future bomber force, and of course, a lot of other factors. So can you walk us through that? Sure. Of course, a lot of what we discussed, uh, we, we can't talk in, in public. But I do recall addressing issues such as the need for a significantly larger bomber force, given the size of potential target sets in the peer conflict and, of course, the highly dispersed nature of those target sets, especially during a conflict in the Pacific. And as I've written in unclassified publications, the Air Force must seek the right balance between a new Bombers' range, size, payload capacity, mission systems, and, of course, cost if it's to develop a force large enough to meet those operational needs. Now, the same is true for other modern combat aircraft programs, not just the B-21, but I'll also emphasize, as did Secretary Gates in public, that it is absolutely critical to acquire a larger number of penetrating bombers, as well as to prevent mission and cost creep that would make them, frankly, unaffordable to obtain. So we focused on size of the force and trade-offs to ensure that the Air Force and DED would buy a large force and not another silver bullet inventory 20 aircraft like what happened with the, the B-2. Yeah, and I want to open this question up for everybody because clearly you had opponents in the Pentagon for your efforts. And the DOD is a big institution and there's a lot of competing interests. So what were some of the counter arguments that you guys faced? Dave, how about if I start and then you layer, we saw these things at different levels in the Pentagon. I, I would just start with what I recognized early on was that people tried to cubbyhole bomber aircraft into nuclear missions only. When our history shows at that point showed us and still does that we have used the bomber force across the spectrum of joint operations. Everything from flying B-2s over the Korean Peninsula to send a message to the dear leader of the DPRK to supporting the global war on terror, troops in contact situations, to specific strikes, limited strikes, into whole theater operations. So that was one of the arguments we had to counter is that bombers aren't singularly focused on just one end of military operations. They contribute across the spectrum of operations. And then I come back to this persistence piece. People were offering options of other capabilities which would not have the ability to persist nor be in close proximity to where targets were. And so what we were able to do is force those proponents for other capabilities to show how they would achieve effects. How will you achieve effects with your capabilities? And that's where the analysis started to tip to our favor, I would say. Yeah, I agree. I heard same tired, shop-worn arguments that I've been hearing for well, that my previous 16 years in the Pentagon. New penetrating bomber would be too expensive. Buying more standoff weapons would be a cheaper solution. The Air Force would be better off if it continued to upgrade its existing bombers rather than invest in new ones, so forth and so on. Now, that 
Upgrade instead of modernize point shouldn't surprise anyone since that's been the preferred approach for many in DoD over much of the last 30 years. It, it extends beyond DoD. I'll never forget a statement that the Office of Management and Budget released to the public after Gates canceled the NGB program, and I'll quote, the existing fleet of 173 bombers will be able to meet expected threats. And as a result of ongoing efforts to upgrade the existing bomber fleet with new electronic and weapon systems, current aircraft will be able to meet the threats expected in the foreseeable future. All right, so now I'd like to point out that the bomber force today consists of about 141 total aircraft, all of which were on their ramp when OMB made that incredibly short-sighted statement. Yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'm gonna, if you can imagine for the audience, I'm holding a grenade and I'm, in, with my teeth, I'm, I'm pulling the pin out and I'm going to drop this in the middle of the studio here. And I've got to ask General Deptula, do you still see some of these arguments playing out today? I know you probably have some thoughts on this. Yeah, just a few slick, but I, let me, I could pull out that, that, that study I mentioned earlier that I accomplished as part of the Commission on Roles and Missions in 94 and 95, and it would still be relevant today. The combination of payload, range, and speed cannot be beat from a cost per effect perspective by any other weapon system, period, dot. Carriers, surface ships, submarines, ARGs, amphibious, well, I just said that, amphibious ready groups, divisions, you pick it. And the Air Force is the only service in the world that has this capacity. Accordingly, the other services view bombers as a threat to the weapon systems that are required to execute operations in their domains, as well as new weapons that are being developed to make a play for relevance in the current focus of the day. And today that's China and the long ranges of the Indo-Pacific. So as an example, you've got the army developing a land-based hypersonic missile that has to be one of the most cost ineffective weapons ever devised. Not to mention that its development is a gross encroachment into the roles and functions of the United States Air Force. It's not a role or mission of the Army. What platoon or company or division, for that matter, is going to be affected at a tactical level by a missile launched at a target 3,000 miles away? Or in the center of China, where we're not going to, hopefully, have any U.S. ground forces. And against a target base, by the way, of possibly well over 100,000 aim points. What's the impact of a couple dozen, if that, of these weapons that cost 40 to $50 million a shot? So I could go on for the rest of the show on this, but I'll stop there. You know, I'll add that the issue of standoff versus penetrating army strike pops up about every five years or so. Uh, even inside the That's airports. because the people that are making those ignorant arguments have never participated in the conduct of a real major regional contingency. Sorry. Absolutely. That's why there's a continuing need to educate and inform those who haven't been. But frankly, every long-range strike study that I've been a part of over the last 30 years that really took a serious look at that issue came down in favor of penetrating a strike. Now, I mentioned the 97 QDR a bit earlier. And here's, here's something that came out of the Deep Attack Weapons Mix study. Quote, in addition, the B-2 could use less expensive munitions and more missions than existing aircraft. And as Rand determined, those cost differences meant buying a new penetrating bomber was a more cost-effective solution over time than simply buying more standoff weapons. That was true then, and it's even more so today, especially, as you said, General Deptula, in the case of hypersonic weapons that air launch could cost 10 to 12 million each and the service launch may cost 50 or more million each. And that's to attack a single target. Well, I've got to ask, what role did top Air Force leaders play in this process? You know, starting with the secretary and chief of staff, you know, there were obviously other important actors that we should cite as well. And this is, you know, obviously a team effort, right? Absolutely. I'd just like to restate the importance of the leadership role that Secretary Mike Donnelly and, and Chief General Norrie Schwartz took at this time under the conditions of which they came into office to be able to look at this matter. And they just accepted that 
we've got to readdress this. We have to have an opportunity to make sure that we are looking out for future presidents, future secretaries of defense, that when they get into situations years ahead, that they will be able to look into the toolkit, the military toolkit, and say, I have something for you, Mr. President, and it's going to be a long-range penetrating strike bomber, and we can assure you that it's going to be effective. So can't thank them enough for their leadership. But there are a couple other leaders. I just want to, one other one that I'd like to talk about that's outside of the Air Force, and that's Bob Martinage. The work that Bob did while working for Mike Vickers, leading the Tiger team that that worked on this assessment was really miraculous, and, and Bob did a great job. But leaders come in different forms. I have three other leaders I'd like to mention. One was, at the time, Major Pico Gallo, a graduate of the B-2 Weapons School, a, a, a very capable B-2 pilot who was working on the staff. Every slide that was built, everything that went in front of leadership was built by, by Pico. They didn't just build slides. He was giving us the benefit of his experience and his intellect of how to continue to develop these arguments. Forever grateful to him. Mr. Brian Fishpaw, who worked at the Air Force Intelligence Agency, was right there with us every step of the way, helping us understand the current and future threats and connecting us to NASIC. Thanks to NASIC, the whole, the whole organization, for giving me and others the opportunity to come spend time with them and look into the future of what China looked like many years into the advance, which we've reached that point now. And then also, Colonel Tim Woods was the Director of Acquisition Special Programs. From an acquisition standpoint, Tim Woods is the father of what is the program today. And without those three younger men operating in their leadership roles across their various functions, we'd have had a hard time pulling this all together. So I just a tip of the cap to them as well as the senior leaders in the Air Force. Yeah, and I'd like to commend my uh, friend, Dr. Jim Miller, who was Undersecretary of Defense for Policy at the time, and one of the senior leaders overseeing the analysis. And Jim was then and continues to be a strong advocate for the, the B-21. Why? Because he's seen the analysis. He understands the operational need for penetrating strike. Just a couple other names. The former Colonel Cortez Conley, who's still in OSD, and, of course, then Brigadier General Lori Robinson, who was the Joint Staff's day-to-day lead for the effort. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention I firmly believe the entire effort may not have succeeded if it wasn't for the day-to-day efforts and leadership of a a guy known as Major General Charlie Lyon. C. Lyon is one of the real unsung heroes here. Thanks, Scott. You and I were partners every step of the way. You know that. One other name that I would I would like to add is Michelle Flournoy. Absolutely. Michelle Flournoy and and Mike Vickers were, in my opinion, from where I sat, I didn't see everything, but from where I sat, the leadership of those two individuals are what got this over the over the goal line. I, I agree, especially on Mike, who was one of the two, I believe, political senior political holdovers into the next administration, and he's never, ever wavered on the need for this capability. Again, because he's seen the analysis. He understands the operational need because he was an operator at one time. I really want to get you guys to hop in on this one, too. So you're doing all this great work with with this great leadership. Thank goodness, you know, that that tide seemed to have changed. So when did you finally see that your pathway was solidifying around a penetrating bomber? What clicked in helping sell all of the skeptics on this? Two points for me. One was we got into a discussion about what we're going to call it, long-range persistent strike bomber or long-range strike bomber. Does the P stay in? Does the P go away? We got to that point. <laughs> I felt like we were fairies dancing on the head of a pen, so I felt pretty confident. The other point was, and this is where I pulled on my programming background, is we'd exhausted all other arguments. So we were just knocking down the arguments about the technology, the threat, the weapons, the capabilities, the need, how to fund it in the FIDEP. And then when I was asked, well, how are you going to fund this from 2020 and beyond? I knew we won at that point. They had no other argument but to try to cast deeply into the future and ask a resourcing question of a knuckle dragon fighter pilot. And through the help of the A-8 organization, we were able to show exactly how this capability would be funded way far into the future. To me, those were the two points where I felt we've won. Yeah, I'm going to add that there, there were some skeptics at the time that remain unsold, and I'm sure they're still out there. Why? Because they couldn't or they wouldn't look past budget issues. 
Now, I, I think uh, I'll add one point to your here, too. A key point to help convince many, including the secretary, was cost-effectiveness comparisons between a new penetrating strike bomber and, and other capabilities. The operational need was understood. The combatant commanders understood it. And, and frankly, the best way to meet those needs, the most cost-effective way to meet those needs, was the penetrating strike bomber that could persist to find mobile targets, which are increasingly the majority of a target set, especially in a Chinese assault on a Taiwan or an adventure in the South China Sea. Mobile moving targets, highly relocatable targets, are the threat, the challenge for us to strike. And you need a penetrating bomber that can close the kill chain organically, if necessary, against them in a highly contested environment where we should expect calm jamming and uh, intermittent data links and so forth. So General Chilton, this one's for you. You were one of the lead customers, so to speak, for this new bomber. So, you know, what helped things really come together in your world from your perspective around the path that was being proposed? Well, I think there was a lot of great work done, first of all, by the Air Force, by the other three gentlemen here, by Dave Deptula, Charlie Lyon, and Mark Gunzinger, to provide analysis that was so convincing and compelling that the Office of Secretary of Defense ran out of arguments to be opposed to it. I think you know, Secretary Gates understood nuclear deterrence better or as good as any previous Secretary of Defense, which is why when the NGB was canceled, he left hope out there that there would be a follow-on. And it's because he understood it. And I know he understood it because he was so supportive of STRATCOM we hadn't exercised our nuclear forces in over five years, at least when I showed up and when I told him I wanted to do a FTX as opposed to the CPX. So, I mean, where we actually would put airplanes on alert and move things around the country and exercise our war plan as opposed to just do a command post exercise where you do it all on paper. He was very supportive of that. So I knew he understood what strategic nuclear deterrence was all about. And so I doubt that he was ever thinking, we don't need a bomber. I think the question came down to what kind of bomber, how much it would cost, and the numbers that would be required for both a nuclear mission, but also the conventional mission for the fleet. General Deptula, you were at the table for a lot of these key meetings. When did you see things gain momentum and what drove this? Well, in a nutshell, this all came to fruition with the defense strategic guidance that was promulgated in 2012. It particularly emphasized the importance of projecting power in the face of growing NI-access aerial denial, or you've heard it referred to earlier as A2AD threats. And it mandated the development of a new stealthy bomber as part of a family of systems. The new stealth bomber, and I like to accurately describe it as a long range sensor shooter, was specifically identified to support a range of critical missions that was outlined in the Defense Strategic Guidance because it has an unmatched ability to deliver rapid sustained firepower and achieve other effects against distant targets directly from the United States in A2AD environments. And that obviously is a key element of our nation's security strategy. Now, buttressing the Strategic guidance is the Pentagon's joint operational access concept that was also promulgated in 2012. And that describes broad concepts for operating in an A2AD environment. No other system appears to fulfill that concept's precepts as effectively as a stealth bomber does. General Lyon, can you just give us the out brief? How was this formally decided and who are the players and what was the process? Well, I'll tell you what I observed from where I sat, and certainly not everything was visible to me. But before we talk about the outbrief, one other key point we haven't touched on, and this was probably the biggest impact that Gonzo had in this process, was a discussion early on to ask senior military leadership to address this issue, to bring, to bring the bomber back, you know, to bring the program back into fruition. So through dialogue between Gonzo and Mr. Jim Brooks, his leader of the Air Force QDR effort at that time, Gonzo put in front of General Schwartz and General Chilton the idea of signing a memo 
requesting permission from Admiral Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to address the issue in the QDR. And the sense was, if this is really important to our leaders, they'll sign this memo. They'll ask for this opportunity. They did, and Admiral Mullen understood it, and he agreed. So as we go to the end, as we get to the debrief, there are two activities that I'm aware of, many others, I'm sure. But one was a small group of trusted advisors went into a discussion with Secretary Gates in his office, and they convinced him in a short discussion. More broader, there was a deputies meeting, advisory group, at which the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs normally attends. This was going to be an issue for, for discussion, and Admiral Mullen said, I'll take this one. That sent a strong and clear signal when the chairman showed up to the DMAG, which he normally doesn't, and weighed in with his support for this bringing this program back. Those are the two I'm aware of. I'm sure there are many others. All right. Well, gentlemen, so here we are today. The B-21 has been praised even by folks who are normally skeptics of major defense programs. And this is really a good thing because we can't get this plane soon enough in the United States Air Force. So how do you want people to understand the B-21 when they first see it next week? Yeah, I'd like them to remember that there has not been a mission area that's been so overstudied by the Department of Defense and independent think tanks, FFRDCs. Everything about the jet and its capabilities is informed by hard analysis. Now, there's always a great deal of speculation about specific attributes of any new aircraft in this role, especially for a classified aircraft like the B-21. But I'd like people to remember that there is a need for a larger bomber force than what's on the ramp today. The national defense strategy requires the Air Force to size its force structure, including its bombers, to defeat peer aggression, deter aggression in the second theater, defend the U.S. homeland, and deter nuclear attacks. These are all additive requirements. So a bomber force is appropriately sized to meet them and credibly, credibly deter a second peer aggressor in another theater, would have more than 300 aircraft, again, based on analysis, including at least 240 penetrating bombers. So that is something that I really wish that folks who attend the rollout keep in the cranium. This is not a one-off. This can't be a program that fields a small silver bullet force. We need the B-21, and we need substantial numbers of them to meet requirements of our own national defense strategy. Um, well, what I would tell you, Slick, is as we move further into the 21st century, we're experiencing a transition of not just time, but also capability. Capability that will allow for a paradigm shift in the role that aircraft will play in meeting U.S. security needs for the remainder of the century. I think it's interesting to observe that since the last B-2 bomber was produced in 1993, we've undergone approximately 20 Moore's Laws cycles, resulting in an exponential increase in electronic capability with a phenomenal decrease in cost to achieve some equal or even greater capabilities. And what that means is that today we can incorporate sensors, processing capacity, and avionics into a single aircraft at an affordable cost to an unprecedented degree. So what we previously labeled as bombers can play dramatically broader roles than they ever did in the past. But to capture this potential requires innovative thought and getting rid of some of those anachronistic concepts out there that aircraft can only perform singular functions and missions. I'd tell you that the era of specialized aircraft is over as technology has moved on and we've got greater and greater resource constraints. The information age allows new aircraft to become much more than just bombers or fighters. And that's why I like to use the term sensor shooter aircraft. And when integrated with other system nodes in every domain, they're gonna have the capability to create what we've been calling for many years a combat cloud a manifestation of a self-forming, self-healing intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance strike maneuver sustainment complex. This concept has the potential 
to usher in an entirely new era in defense, and the B-21 will play a critical role in this new era. General Lyons, sir, I want to ask you this. We've really focused on the jet and just to open the aperture a little bit here. What about the long range strike mission in general and its value to the nation? It endures. And from the time that we had these dialogues that we're talking about 15 years ago, we've continued to demonstrate the Department of Air Force, just the the plain value of having this, this long range strike capability to be used across the full spectrum of military operations. I think it just goes back to the very tenets at the beginning of the creation of the Department of of Air Force. Global power, global reach, global vigilance. What we're talking about today is global power and how we can assure our allies, nations that think as we do, that they'll fall under our protective umbrella and this is a capability that we bring that nobody else does. And when you say nobody else, that's no other U.S. military service That's no ally, that's no partner. Only the Air Force and its bomber. Exactly. Bingo. Well, powerful words in closing, and I do really appreciate that. And just as an American, I appreciate that we've got folks like you fighting to make these ideas a reality to protect American values. So I can't thank you enough for being here. And you really drove the point home on how key decisions and key people, how we just depend on you. So we're fortunate to have you here during this juncture. And thanks so much for being on the podcast. You know, thanks to you, Slick. This is a really, uh, really good show. Very informative. Well, Slick, it was great to be with you today. And again, a great pleasure to join Gonzo and Charlie and Dave Deptula. My pleasure. Thanks, Slick. I'll see you next time, Slick. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.